want to welcome you this morning. If, this, if you're here for the first time or the first of a few times and you haven't filled out one of these cards, I invite you to do that. I promise you we will not hassle you or harass you, but we want to put some information in front of you where you can find out really who we are. One visit on a Sunday morning will give you some insight into who we are as a people, but uh, what we believe, um, understanding that, seeing that in front of you will really give you a better sense of who we are and spending time with us uh, for weeks, months, potentially even. Um, but this would be a good first step, this little card. You can drop that in the offering little satchel thing that comes around later. But we're glad you're with us this morning. Uh, I want to begin with prayer, and uh, we're going to pray for another church. We're going to pray for Chapel Hill Baptist Church, and the pastor's name is Billy Walker. And I'm also going to pray for our kids that are in service with us this morning. Those of you that are here, maybe for the first time, and aren't familiar with this, or the first of a few times, the last Sunday of the month, we invite our, not our smallest, but our close to smallest. You know, the little wee babies are not, aren't in here necessarily, but the, the toddlers may be in here with us. And I know what a daunting concept that is for parents. And... Um, um, before you have kids, you think that's going to be real easy and tidy, and you know, uh, you have a, you know a lot of stuff before you have kids, and then once you have them, you figure it out that that you don't know everything. So I want to pray for parents. And I want to pray for those little kids too. That kids, we're glad you're in here with us this morning. And this thing that's about to take place is not too big for you. It's not too um, adult for you. It's for you too. So I invite you to listen. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, what a beautiful, beautiful way to start the morning, singing rich and true things back to you, about you, reminding each other of the blessings that we swim in, that we live in. It was a fitting way to begin our morning, singing these things and reminding ourselves of these things. And I pray that this sermon will be in keeping with how we've began the morning. I pray it'll flesh out the blessings in some ways. Lord, I uh, want to pray this morning with our people. We want to lift up another church nearby. I want to pray for Chapel Hill Baptist Church. I want to pray for Billy Walker. Having had an opportunity to hear him speak at a recent um, event, Lord, I was blessed to hear his heart. And I'm blessed to think that a country church that may not have many people in it is likely eating very well this morning. Really thankful for that, Lord. I'm thankful that you have drawn him, that you are growing him, that you are using him, that he is exposing your word, that he's enjoying you, first of all, and that that's spilling over into his ministry. Lord, I pray you will use him at Chapel Hill Baptist. I pray that that people will be equipped to be salty, bright, and aromatic in their context. Thankful for the opportunity and privilege to lift them up this morning. Lord, also I want to pray for parents, uh, parents of little ones who may be concerned about these next few minutes and might be trying to figure out how they're going to survive it, how they're going to pay attention. I'm thankful that our sermons are recorded, that technology helps. But beyond that, Lord, I'm thankful that 
the kids that are here in, the, in these next few minutes with us this morning, whether they get a lot out of this or not, they are seeing and experiencing the reality that they are part of something. I'm thankful for that. Thankful for that lesson. Lord, I do pray that they will be attentive. I pray that our kids will hear from you, that they will enjoy what you've done for us and how you've blessed us. We turn this time over to you, Lord, and we're thankful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to the book of Ephesians. If you were here last week, you know that's where we are. If you weren't, that may be news to you. We've uh, begun, I've had the chance to begin three books in the life of the church, and this is the third. So that began last Sunday, and um, we don't know how long we'll be in Ephesians. We're going to be sort of straddling two books or spending time in two books, not only the book of Ephesians, but we'll also be in the book of Isaiah for short periods. My Bible falls open to John and Hebrews, and it's not falling open quite yet to Ephesians, so we'll have to be patient there. If this is your first time being here, um, I want to invite you to use a Bible. It's probably in the seat bottom in front of you, and if you don't have one, you can have that one. And in fact, over these next few minutes, if you want to use a pen, you can underline some things, you can write in there. It's not sacrilegious or unholy thing to write in a Bible. Uh, The worst thing is to not read it, not engage it, and not even have one. So if you don't have one, take that one in front of you. But you're going to need it in these next few minutes. I don't have a talkie talk prepared for you. I don't have a speech prepared for you. I'm going to expose this this book or a section of this book to you, so you'll need to have that nearby. The book of Ephesians, uh, last week we sort of got introduced to it considering the context for the book of Ephesians, and this morning we're going to begin a three-Sunday series in what is likely the longest Greek sentence in our Bibles. It begins in verse 3 and goes all the way through verse 14, and I want to do this every week for the next three weeks. I want to read all those verses first. I'm not preaching from the whole section today. I'm just preaching from verses 3 through 6 this morning. But I want to read them together because I want us to sort of immerse ourselves in this passage for these next three weeks. Let's begin in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. At that first reading, some of you knowing that I'm going and continuing on in Ephesians chapter 1 may have read that this week, or you may be hearing it for the first time this morning. It may sound like an ocean of deep and big thought. It is an ocean, but it's more linear than you may realize. And we are going to, I believe, in these next three weeks, going to make sense of it. In some ways, what Paul is doing here, before he really even gives the greeting to the Ephesian church, that begins in verse 15. Before he really even says, hey, hello, I'm thankful for you, I'm praying for you, he gushes here for these verses. It's like a a waterfall of big and awesome things, big and awesome truths that just cascade all the way through verse 13. Paul is overwhelmed with these deep and rich and important things. It's likely that Paul had a scribe or what was called an amanuensis that helped him write the book of Ephesians. And I just can't help but imagine that that amanuensis looked up from his pen and his paper and looked at him and said, Paul, breathe, breathe. I know you're overwhelmed with these amazing things, but please stop and take a breath and let me maybe catch up. There is a possibility that this verses 3 through 14 was a hymn, an ancient hymn. It may have been a catechism or a teaching structure for the early church. We're going to attack it according to verse 3. Verse 3 is going to be, I believe, our guide for making sense of verses 4 through 14. So I'm going to spend a few moments unpacking some of the furniture of verse 3. And I think you'll see as we unpack that that it's a nice guide for the rest of this big, long waterfall cascade of sentence. Let's begin with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, the subject here in this guiding verse is God the Father. And this, this Sunday in particular, we're going to be focusing primarily on God the Father. But in this guiding verse, God the Father is the subject behind the verbs. The verbs are the things that we can expose here that are going to help us make sense of this guiding passage. First of all, that the Father has blessed us. Now, before I go into that, let me show you a little bird's eye view of this passage. There are three peoples, two of them clearly mentioned in this guiding verse, one of them alluded to, that are going to help us make sense of this passage. The first is the Father, the subject of the verse. The second, he mentions the Son in there. And third, he mentions spiritual blessings. Now, there is the potential to translate spiritual blessings as blessings that come from the Holy Spirit. Now, the cool thing about that understanding is that it gives us a beautiful guide for the rest of this passage. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm going to show you how that breaks down here in a moment. But one of the cool things about how we're going to spend these next few Sundays is a Baptist church is going to spend three Sundays talking about the Trinity. Man, that's awesome. Most time Baptists, we can do very little more with the Trinity than the whole egg illustration. 
which you don't even know what that is. Some of you, like, have, maybe, may, your church may not even made an attempt at that. It's really cool that a bunch of Baptists are going to sit around enjoying the gospel according to the work of the persons of the Trinity. And I'm going to show you how this passage breaks down in the next few minutes. But first of all, I want to f- focus on the Father, that the Father has blessed us. That blessed us verb there in the Greek is a aorist tense verb. It's their version in some ways of a past tense event. It doesn't only mean past tense, though. It also means sort of a summary verb. I was thinking about what um, a way in English to kind of get a sense of this is somebody says to you, that's not how you were raised. Raised is past tense, but that word raised would be sort of a summary verb capturing a life event. A bird's eye word that takes you to lots of things that unfolded toward one thing of being raised. The Father has blessed us, past tense, and this summary verb is going to be the guiding verb for the rest of this section these next three weeks. The cool thing about it being aorist tense is it points to the reality that we have already been blessed with what Paul is going to call every spiritual blessing. We spend so much time praying for future blessings or praying through current problems and asking for a blessing in this or blessing in that, talking about things that we've been blessed in. Well, Paul is going to sum it up really nicely here in some things that we have already, aorist tense, been blessed in, been blessed with, things that are more important to him than even saying hi, which he's going to begin in verse 15. Things that he's overwhelmed with to the point where he can't even hardly stop and take a breath. Have to be a a cool encouragement for the Ephesian church that whatever trial the Ephesian church may face, Ephesian church, you can know that you have already been blessed. Whatever trial the Crosspoint Fellowship folks may face, we have already been blessed past tense. It's nice that he says every spiritual blessing too. And it could be translated every kind of spiritual blessing. He's only really going to talk about three real things, real big picture things right here from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's summarizing them as the every. Not just some of the blessings. Not just most of the spiritual blessings. But every spiritual blessing. Blessing is in these next few verses, according to Paul. It's an exhaustive list through verse 13. In some ways, verses 3 through 13, and in some ways, this Sunday, next Sunday, and the next, would make a nice Christianity 101 lesson for how have you been blessed if you've placed your faith and trust in Christ. Foundational stuff on how we've been blessed. Paul, too, makes the point to call them spiritual blessings as contrasted with physical. If you read Paul, you don't see Paul talking about physical blessings very often, if at all. And here he's distinguishing specifically every spiritual blessing. Prisonments. I've had countless beatings, often near death. Five times I've received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. They believed 40 would kill you. In other words, I've come right up close to, right up next to death by lashing. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Three times 
A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. It sounds like a Dr. Seuss in a dark Dr. Seuss. Gracious sakes alive, everywhere he's gone, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil, in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. So what's he going to have to say about physical blessings? You might ask him about physical blessings and he might go, huh? (laughs) What physical blessings? I'm not overwhelmed with physical blessings. I'm overwhelmed with the spiritual realities that have been earned for us and have been achieved through us that God the Father blessed us with. That's what overwhelms me. That's what compels me in my ministry might be his answer. Think about, too, not only the writer, but think about who's receiving this letter, the Ephesian church in Ephesus. If you paid attention last week, by this point, it wouldn't be hard to remember when Demetrius stirred up all the silversmiths and the entire city of Ephesus together is shouting for two hours straight about Artemis. How great is Artemis? How great is Diane? Man, it would have been a very expensive thing to trust Christ in this context. So conversations about physical blessings, the kind of things that often consume us, frankly, would have been pretty foreign to them. The physical stuff is noticeably absent in this list of blessings. The health and wealth folks, frankly, guys like Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar with his jet, they would do well to study this passage of what Paul says are our real blessings. They would do really well to pour themselves into trying to make sense of the spiritual blessings that we have now that God has blessed us with through the work of Christ. Now, There is room for spiritual blessings. The problem with the health and wealth folks is they get stuck on guys like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you go back and look at the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you see their flocks growing. You see their numbers being added to. You see their borders being expanded. You see all these things that the health and wealth people are preaching now. You see them then, but you see them then as shadow of what we have now. All those flocks those borders being extended, all those people, all those tents were things that were just supposed to be shadow that would reflect the real substance of what we have now in Christ. We have every spiritual blessing. I'm just going to offer that spiritual blessings are better. They're better because they're durable, because the physical ones aren't really I'm thankful for physical blessings. I'm thankful for a healthy day. I'm thankful for a good meal. I'm thankful for some clothes to wear, a place to lay my head at night. Don't turn up your nose at physical blessings because those come from the Lord as well. But those pale in comparison to the spiritual blessings that we have because they're durable. They last a lot longer than the physical. There's no moth. There's no rust. There's no decay that can damage these blessings because they come from the Spirit and they are safeguarded, it says here, in heavenly Places No thieves can break in to take or destroy or damage these blessings. So what are these blessings? Today we're going to be considering verses 4 through 6, the Father's choice 
Next week, verses 7 through 12, we will be considering the Son's work. And the Sunday after that, we'll be considering the Holy Spirit's guarantee in verses 13 and 14. It's a beautiful layout of this passage. Each of those little sections, too, ends with the phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace. It seems as if Paul actually had a plan to this long sentence. The Father's choice, verses 4 through 6, where we're going in these next few minutes. The Son's work, verses 7 through 12. And the Spirit's guarantee, verses 13 and 14. A bunch of Baptists going to enjoy the Trinity. Good stuff. So let's move into verses 4 through 6. Even as he chose us in him, remember the subject is the Father. We're carrying that subject into this verse. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved now, the Father is the subject behind the main verbs of these verses 4 through 6. As he was the subject of verse 3, you remember the verb there, he blessed us in verse 3. In verse 4, he chose us. That word there in Greek is eklegomai, or it's, it's from the word eklegomai. It's where we get the word elect. It's where we get the word ekklesia, which is the Greek word for the church. You could say the chosen folk. <laughs> what church are you part of? What chosen folk are you part of? It sounds weird, but that's what you could say. This is what this word means. He chose us. And then being redundant in verse 5 and 6, he gives, it's not so much redundant, it's a little amplified on the choice. He uses the word predestined, which means to decide beforehand. In verse 4, he chose us. In verse 5, he predestined us. And then in verse 6, he blessed us with his grace. It's cool. If you look at verse 3 and then verse 6, you have a blessing sandwich. He blessed us in verse 3. He blessed us with grace in verse 6. And verses 4 and 5, we have his choice and his predestination. Right there. Right there at the top of Paul's list of amazing blessings that so overwhelm him that he can't even hardly talk. Or he can't even hardly breathe. Man, think about that for a minute. Let that hit you for a moment. God is the prime mover, too, behind all these important verbs. All the other spiritual blessings that unfold in these next few verses that we're going to be looking at next Sunday and next are dependent on these verbs his blessing, his choice, and his predestination. Now, these verbs should sound familiar, or at least them playing out in someone's life. I've found in the years that I've been preaching this, which haven't been all my years of preaching, frankly, and I'll tell that story here in a moment. Turn over to Genesis 12. I've found that folks bristle at this conversation. They bristle at passages like this. They bristle at notions of choice and predestination. And I find more often than not, the folks that are bristling are folks that haven't been inundated and saturated with the rest of the Bible. I can't say that as, it'd be a caricature to say that as a rule. 
But I believe if you're inundated and saturated with the storyline of God at work doing things over thousands of years before the cross, then teachings like this sit better. In some ways... If you don't have all that context of the Old Testament story, it's like someone telling you a joke or uh, the punchline of a joke. And you know by the sound of it, it, the sort of the metric sound of it, that it's supposed to be really funny, so you laugh. But you don't really get it. I would offer that if you want to really get it, you have to look at the big storyline, the full counsel, even. I want you in Genesis chapter 12, but I'm going to show you a little snapshot of this in Genesis chapter 6. Just listen to this. It shouldn't be strange for us to hear that God chooses, that God predestines, that God blesses. He's been doing it for a long time. He's been doing it really, frankly, from the beginning. Listen to Genesis chapter 6, verse 11. The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So God got everybody together, and God called for volunteers to see if there would be anybody that would be willing to build an ark. Think about that for a minute. You know I'm being facetious. Even kids in here know I'm being facetious because you know the story of Noah. You know it didn't go down like that at all. God didn't call for volunteers. Man, everybody's corrupt. Let's see if we can find anybody that will step up and help us save the day here. God didn't do that. Instead, it said, God said to Noah. Surgical, specific. God chose Noah. He said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Earth, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. It shouldn't be surprising to us to hear that God chooses, that God blesses, that God predestines. He's been doing it ever since the very beginning. Look at Genesis chapter 12. Here's a next nice example of one of our patriarchs. Genesis chapter 12. You don't know much about this guy named Abram except that he's mentioned in a list, like kind of a genealogy list. What's happened up to this point in time is God sent the flood, the waters have subsided, uh, the families of Shem, Ham, and Japheth have, have uh, multiplied and scattered, and then beyond that, Babel has been built, and God's scattered everyone across the face of the earth. And here we just sort of parachute into this story of a guy named Abram. Listen how this goes down in chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, he again did not call for volunteers to help us with the human problem. He didn't get all of the mankind together or even some of the mankind together and say, let's see if there's anybody that's willing to step up and go to a land that I will show you and build a people with me. If you have any volunteers, he didn't do that. He spoke surgically, specifically, to a man named Abram, a man that lived in Ur of the Chaldeans where they worshipped the moon. A man, too, that was married to a woman named Sarai. Her name was associated with moon worship. Abram didn't go looking for God. God called and chose and spoke to him surgically. 
He said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make, he's the prime mover behind big verbs, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, an old man married to a barren wife, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Man, that's what God does. Abram goes to the land that he told him to go to, the land of Canaan. And once he's there, the Lord appeared to him in verse 7. and says, to your offspring, I will give this land. To a bunch of folks that haven't even been born, I will predestine for blessing. God has been up to this for a long time. You can follow the storyline and see him doing that over and over and over and over again. He did it with Israel. He did it with plenty others. And sure enough, he follows through on blessing people who had not even been born yet. God was about the work of choosing and calling and predestining for blessing for a long time before the Ephesians are reminded of this 2,000 years ago, and a long time before Crosspoint Fellowship sits down for a Sunday to consider it this morning. It's what God does. It's just what he does. He chose his people before the foundation of the world, and he predestined his people for adoption into his family before they were even born. Those two are aorist tense verbs as well. He chose. He predestined. It happened a long time ago. These are blessings that were decided and appointed for you before you even took breath. And all of this is to the praise of his grace extended to us in his son. Now something that It shouldn't surprise me, but it does. It always surprises me. But I know myself, this concept, this thought, John 6, we're going to go there in a little while, was my first reckoning with truths like this. And my mind, my heart, everything in me had a strong aversion to even the conversation this concept was not something that I embraced. It certainly wouldn't be on the top of my list of number one, number one on my list of blessings. But here it is on Paul's. And I have to wonder, why do so many people have an aversion to this idea? I think in some ways, if you wonder how distorted and twisted the natural mind can become and be, you have to find some confirmation in the fact that the blessing that's listed on the top of Paul's list, his exhaustive list, remember, the every spiritual blessing, is something that makes people so stinking mad. You have to wonder, man, what is going on with our minds? How far have we fallen that something like this would make us so angry when Paul here says, man, this is the number one blessing? If you're in that place this morning or if your heart's singing right now, I want us to consider three things. If you're hurting right now, you're frustrated, you're angry, you're whatever, you're bristling over these sort of thoughts, even though they're right there. Even if you're reckoning with something, I don't like the sound of it, but I'm going to believe it. 
I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you to see the beauty in this with three things. First of all, God's people were chosen early. I'll tell you what all three of them are, just so you, have a, you know where I am in the sermon. First, God's people were chosen early. Second, God's people were chosen unprejudiced, or his choice was unprejudiced, is a better way to put it. And third, his people were chosen for holiness. First, God's people were chosen early. Look at those verses four and five again of our passage that we're focusing on today. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined, he determined beforehand us as adoption, as adopted as his sons through Christ Jesus. These things happened very, very, very early. In fact, they happened before he said, let there be light. Before he even said, let there be light. Before he said, land, you go here. Water, you go here. Galaxies, you go here. Stars, let me name each of you. Before he named stars, he named and called and chose you if you are in Christ. Let that hit you for a moment. He chose you early. If you are in Christ by faith, apprehending God's grace and salvation, then before your mom and dad held you and named you, God knew you. Before your mom and dad came up with a name, you may know the story of how they came up with a name. They knew a family member or they, a guy in the sports team just really thought he was so awesome. Or somebody in the Bible, like, I think, well, before y'all came up with a name, parents, before your, parent, your parents came up with your name, person, God knew your name. And God recorded your name in the book of life in ink. Done. Man, Thoughts like this may be hard to conceptualize and hard to even embrace, but when you begin to see beauties like that, wait a second, I had an appointment with belief, and it happened way, way, way early, earlier than when I was six years old when I said, Christ, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. He chose us in him. I want you to think about this for a moment. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus. He chose us in him. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus. I want you to see the association of his choice with something that he did in Jesus. He predestined you to adoption through Jesus Christ. He chose you in him. Something I want you to see here for a moment. Listen to this passage from Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Jesus, Peter is preaching at Pentecost. He says, Jesus delivered up According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawlessness. God didn't in the cross say, let's come up with a plan to fix this human problem. According to God's definite foreknowledge, according to his definite plan, he determined before he said, let there be light, what his son was going to do. It was already decided before Adam and Eve were created. He wasn't caught off guard by Adam and Eve's sin. Nothing has surprised him. He knew about all of it before it ever happened. And he actually had a plan to remedy it before it ever happened. And it involved his son. Here's the thing that really should scandalize you. That he sent his son in the fullness of time at precisely the right moment. 
To do the work that would redeem mankind is a wonderful thought. But what I want you to grab here for a moment is the reality that just as he foreordained and foreplanned that work in and through his son, he foreordained and planned your faith and your trust and your belief in that son. You are caught up in the same plan right there next to his son. Let that hit you for a moment. Let the shock of a choice involving you and his son hit you. It was an arranged marriage. And it was arranged before he said, let there be light. Man, that's good news. A bunch of Westerners, and I don't mean Western as in cowboy Western. I mean Western as in, like in America, we don't like the thought of an arranged marriage because that couldn't possibly be true love. But this is the story of the gospel. It's an arranged marriage, and it was arranged before we ever even took breath. It's strange news maybe to you. You may be hearing it for the first time, but let me tell you, it is good news. You may be troubled with the thought that, hey, wait a minute. I thought I chose him. Let me help you with this. You did. You did, but you only chose him because he chose you a long, 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 long time ago. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. Man, yes, you chose him. He ordained that choice. He ordained your choice and appointed you to choose and all the while didn't rob you of your choice. He didn't make you a robot. He didn't make you some automaton that, yes, I think I will love Jesus. He didn't rob you of your choice. He ordained your choice. Turn to John chapter 6. We can't possibly talk about this without going to what has been home base, at least for Crosspoint over the years, since we moved through the book of John. Before we got to, to, to John chapter 6, anytime there was a conversation having anything to do with choice or predestination, immediately my mind went to a guy named John Calvin. And you might as well, it might as well be a curse word before John 6. And in some ways, it is a curse word in our community. You won't see somebody get really mad, mention John Calvin in a conversation over a cup of coffee and Starbucks. Man, the thing that John 6 showed me is this isn't John Calvin's idea. John Calvin and Augustine didn't come up with this. John Calvin didn't come up with this. Apparently, Paul came up with this. And Paul, at the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because it's true. Listen to this development in John chapter 6. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, I think, because God just completely did a work in my life and my understanding of the gospel, and for many of us in the life of our church, it reoriented and redirected and, I think, rounded out our understanding of how God works in salvation. John chapter 6 begins with him feeding the multitudes. Right after that, he walks on the Sea of Galilee, cross over to the other side. The crowds follow him around the next day, asking for food. He encourages them, don't work for food that, that perishes. Work for some spiritual blessings. Don't work for physical blessings. Work for some spiritual blessings would be a nice connection to some of the things we've talked about already. He preaches a sermon there too. It's an opportune moment. He preaches a sermon and he goes to verse 44. They've just been grumbling about some of the things that he says. He says, don't grumble in verse 43. And then in verse 44, he says this. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. I like the thought of synthesizing passages, synthesizing well-handled, contextually handled passages. So if we were to synthesize Ephesians chapter 1 with John chapter 6, it would go something like this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me chose him before the foundation of the world. No one can come to me unless the Father predestined him for adoption as a son or daughter. He does it again in verse 65. He says, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. We could do the same thing with this passage. No one can come to me unless the Father has chosen him before the foundation of the world. No one can come to me unless the Father has predestined him for adoption as my son and daughter. Now, if you're hearing this this morning and you're like, man, I, again, I'm really bristling at this. I don't like the thought of this. I don't like the thought of an arranged marriage. I don't like the thought of him choosing me. I like the thought of me choosing him, period. If these sort of concepts of no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, no one can come to me unless the Father has granted him to me, that, that I didn't make up. It's right here. But if you're bristling, just know you're in really good company. And you're, in fact, ancient company. Look at the next verse. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. If you're offended at this, you recoil at this, you're bristling at this, like I'm out of here, well, you're in really good, good and old and ancient company. Some, maybe many, are offended with this kind of conversation, offended at it. But some are like Peter, delighted. Frankly, I'm going to stick with Peter because I'm delighted with it. But I'm confessing to you I haven't always been. When I launched off into John, beginning of our journey here at Crosspoint, and I launched off into preaching verse by verse, I made a covenant with myself as I preached through verse by verse that I wasn't going to do gymnastics to try and explain away something, but I was going to believe it as I preached it. And that's why I nearly wept through the entire sermon that I preached on John chapter 6, verse 44. Because paradigms don't come down easily and comfortably. They fall and they crash and it hurts. I don't know why it hurts. Because now I look back at it and it's just the greatest of news. I'd put it with Paul at the top of my list of spiritual blessings. Now here's why. Moving on to number two. We're chosen early, and this is connected. We're chosen unprejudiced. We're chosen uninfluenced. We're chosen unbiased. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking that God was unprejudiced. God was unbiased. God was uninfluenced by the kind of person you'd turn out to be. Look at verse 4 and 5 again. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. We were chosen before the foundation of the world. That's really, really, really good news. 
that we should be holy and blameless. And the good news is, is that we were chosen before the foundation of the world because if his choice was dependent on how I did after I was born, well then, that's not going to work out well for me or for you. I think the first word that I learned when I was born was, after I was born, was mine. All I did when I was born was prove, was to prove that I was sinful from the beginning. A dark, selfish, proud heart from my birth. You could argue with David that we are wicked from our conception. Man, that may be hard for us to conceptualize, but that's because we're comparing ourselves to one another. You look at a little wee baby and say, this little dude's innocent. We're talking about comparing humankind to the holiness of God. That's the measure. When you compare to your neighbor or your brother, most of us are doing pretty good because you don't have to look hard in the news to see what despicable stuff's going on out there. And yeah, baby looks really good, given that. But we are talking relative the holiness of God. The good news for us is that his choice was made before we were born. And you were chosen, the clue here, that we should be holy and blameless. Not because we're holy and blameless, because we're not. We were chosen and reckoned holy and blameless in Christ before we ever took breath. That's really, really, really good news. Turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 is a really, what I would say in some ways, is an exhaustive handling of God's sovereign choice. In fact, that's the heading at the beginning of Romans chapter 9 in my Bible. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I'm going to look at verses 10 through 16. Apparently, the Roman church was struggling with this concept of God's choice and God's election. And Paul spent a lot of time here in chapter 9 dealing with that. But beginning in verse 10, he uses as an example two brothers, a man, a, a, a man named Jacob and a man named Esau. Beginning in verse 10, I'm going to begin in verse 9. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. A, a previously barren old lady is going to have a son. And not only that, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You could summarize that by saying, Jacob, I set my love on and blessings for. I chose him, and I'm predestining him to blessing. Esau, I didn't. Why can he do that? Because he's God. He can do it according to the purpose of his own good will. It's a beautiful passage here. You can spend some time in Romans chapter 9 trying to make sense of this. I think you will find some really good help there if you just... Put your paradigms aside and say, I'm just going to believe what it says. I'm going to tell you right now, I really see this as very, very, very good news for the Jacobs in the room. See, Jacob's name means heel grabber. And Jacob proved as much over the course of his lifetime. He was a conniving, heel grabbing little sucker. He talked his brother out of the birthright. His hungry brother fooled him out of the birthright. 
He fooled his dad out of the blessing. Man, he just proved that God apparently is not picking the shiny pennies. He's apparently not up to picking those that are already holy and blameless because Jacob, heel-grabbing, lying, conniving Jacob, really isn't. And this is really good news for any other Jacobs in the room. If you've ever proven with me that you can lie, that you can cheat, that you can deceive, that you're a little heel grabber yourself, that you've been delighted, you should be delighted with this good news. This is the good news of the gospel, that God has come to save wretches like Jacob, like you and me. If you realize, like Paul wrote in Romans 3, that no one is righteous no, not one, that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. If you've come to grips with that personally and you know, man, I got a lot in common with Jacob, then you've got to be with me thankful for this good news that his choice was unprejudiced by the kind of little boy or little girl that you would turn out to be. Thankfully, that choice was made before the beginning of time. If, on the other hand, though, you feel pretty good about yourself... If, on the other hand, you're feeling like, man, this, this kind of bothers me, this talk about heel grabbing, this lying, conniving, cheating, deceiving, because I'm really not like that. If this, this talk sort of offends you in some way, then you're in for a rude awakening when you realize that Jesus came for the sick, not the well. In Mark chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Jesus said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, but Jacobs. Any other Jacobs in here? Man, I'm one. Oh, there is a little bitty Jacob. Man, what a great name, because we're all Jacobs. His choice of his people was uninfluenced by the kind of people that they were. This is good news and hope for pagans that live in Ephesus and worship Artemis. This is hope and good news for murderers. This is hope and good news for convicts. This is hope and good news for teenagers who rage against authority. This is good news and hope for those who've realized with me that oftentimes even when we do a good deed for someone, that secret, my dark heart secretly is really ministering to myself so I'll feel better about myself. Anybody else really honest about that? Sometimes you do some good things just to make yourself feel better. Man, this is good news for those with dark, selfish hearts and for those with big, monstrous pride. This is good news for those who are leprous with defilement, having participated in the worst thing the world has to offer. If you, on the other hand, think that God is lucky to have you, this isn't such good news. In fact, it might seem unfair. You're going to feel like the older brother when the father prepares the feast for the prodigal son, sort of gypped. But man, this is good news for the Jacobs. It's good news for this Duggar fellow that's been in the news this week. I don't, I don't watch the show. I don't even know who he is, but I watch the news. And there's, it's good news for people that have participated, sadly, in some vile, heartbreaking things. It's the scandal of the gospel that he chose us before we performed 
Because if it was based on performance, it would never happen. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1. This fosters great humility in people that apprehend this. Realizing this should foster wonderfully, beautifully, attractive humility in those who understand this. And here's why. If he has a pattern of choice at all, he's actually choosing the foolish things that confound the wise. He's actually choosing a moon worshiper who's old and married to a barren woman to be the father of his people. He's actually choosing the least likely to succeed. I appreciate how the book of 1 Corinthians begins for a bunch of knuckleheads of the Corinthian church. Paul takes them to this reality, beginning in verse 26. Consider your calling, brothers. Consider the choice that God made of you. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Man, that's good news right there because I can identify with that. That makes total sense because I feel weak, I feel foolish, I feel despised, I despise myself. I feel all these things he's talking about and then I realize, oh, wait a second, his choice wasn't based on me being most likely to succeed. His choice wasn't based on me being a shiny penny. He told Israel this as well. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, he says, Israel... It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. This is what he does. This is how he moves. He chooses fishermen. He chooses the most despised tax collectors. He chooses people that once persecuted the church to start and plant the church. This is how he moves. He chooses Gentiles. He clears the outer courts of the Gentiles so that they can make a beeline to the Holy of Holies. That's the kind of God that we have. And this is the kind of work that he's doing in this choosing work. One of the first conversions in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8, is a conversion of an Ethiopian eunuch. Eunuchs were unclean or considered unclean and were excluded from the assembly of the Lord, referencing Deuteronomy chapter 23. But not now, not in Christ they aren't. This Ethiopian eunuch that Philip led to the Lord was chosen before God said, let there be light. Before Philip showed up, before he's sitting there reading Isaiah, he was known and he was chosen uninfluenced, unprejudiced by what would happen to him at birth or as a young boy to make him a eunuch. God drew him to the sun as he read this book of Isaiah and the eyes of his heart were opened by God's pre-creation decree and he was adopted to the family of God. This is good news 
for eunuchs, good news for heel grabbers, good news for Jacobs, for fishermen, for tax collectors. It's good news for adulterers even. That's the good news of the gospel. That takes us to our third point, John chapter 8. It's good news for adulterers. John chapter 8. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. In verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down, wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Man, this woman apparently was chosen in ages past before time began for this divine appointment. Chosen unprejudiced by her adultery. Chosen unbiased, uninfluenced by the fact that she would be caught in adultery. Chosen not according to her performance, good or bad, but chosen now, as of this moment, for holiness and blamelessness, where Jesus turns to her and says, Go and sin no more. There's some seriously strong assurance that comes from knowing and believing that God chose you in ages past to be his. It's really good news. It should assure you. But let not that assurance give you a low view of holiness. Let not that assurance give you the impression that how you live does not matter. In this passage in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, there's sort of a parallel. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world and that we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us for adoption as sons. If you put those side by side, what you realize is what he's putting up there is adoption as sons putting on parallel with chosen for holiness and blamelessness. Those are synonymous. You could use them interchangeably. He chose us to be adopted as sons. He predestined us that we should be holy and blameless before him. You could switch them around because they're interchangeable. Being his means holiness and blamelessness. This has got to be part of the conversation because there's a potential problem of seeing your work in salvation as passive and God's as active and leading you mistakenly to deduce that how you live doesn't matter. If your salvation isn't based on performance after all, then who cares how you live? We're wearing alien righteousness, right? But that's missing the fact that we were saved for holiness and blamelessness. If someone's life doesn't reflect some measure of growing holiness and blamelessness, 
then they probably weren't chosen for it. I want you to hear me say that. I want you to get that. If someone's life doesn't reflect growing measures of holiness and blamelessness, then you have to deduce that they weren't chosen for it because I'm just going to argue that what God purposes to do, he does. By definition of being God, if he purposes to save you and call you before the foundation of the world to holiness and blamelessness, then it's going to happen. The good news of the gospel is that God saves wretches and conforms wretches to look like and to be in the image of his own son. It's reckoned in an instant, the minute you trust Christ as Savior and Lord. But it plays out in application and a slow plod over time, but it moves forward nonetheless. His choosing you is incentive for holy knife not license for whatever kind of life you want to live. His choosing you empowers you to live a holy life. His choosing you gives you endurance and maybe even a sense of humor at the irony to press on and pursue living a holy life. It's what you were chosen for. Three things I want to leave you with, very brief. Three application points. Remember, I'm an application junkie, and I want to help the application junkies in the room. First of all, work at loving the blessing of our Father's choice. It's work for some folks. It was work for me. I had to work at making this, this making sense to me. I had to work at loving this idea. I don't know why. Again, maybe it was my natural mind. Maybe it was just a paradigm that was very well-established. I don't know what it is, but... Work at loving the blessing of our Father's choice. It's at the top of Paul's list. Work at making it at the top of your list. It's a treasure. Secondly, celebrate, sing, write, pray, saying thank you that his choice was uninfluenced by the person that you would be. (laughs) That's the greatest news of the gospel. His choice was unprejudiced and uninfluenced and not based on your performance. And third, pursue holiness. Yep. Nothing new, nothing innovative, just old-fashioned. Pursue walking in what he called you to. Pursue walking in a manner of life that reflects what you've already been reckoned. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful for this list of blessings. And I'm thankful for this one that's at the top that our natural ears and our maybe our modern ears don't care for. I'm thankful of what the treasure, what a treasure it is when we really understand it, when we really apprehend it, when we really make sense of it. God, it fosters humility in me. I pray that it fosters humility in all of us and even a sense of humor that you would choose and call the likes of us. God, I pray that that humility is something that transfers to being a sweet aroma and an attractant. 
God, I pray that humility that's fueled by the fact that we were called before we ever did anything good or bad, but that was called based according to your perfect will, will be something, too, that galvanizes us, that gives us sobriety in our faith to realize that just as ordained as your son's work was, our faith was ordained and right beside each other. The fact that you had a plan before time began that involved us and your son, I pray that that grips us. God, I'm thankful 